Let's bow our heads and pray. Jesus, you are the lamb who was slain, and in your resurrection you have begun to reign. We pray that you would reign here in this room, in our hearts and minds, and that you would open us up to the things that you would have us here today. Words of conviction about the things that need to be different in our life, and words of comfort about the things that have always been the same. Your rule and reign over all of creation, your death and resurrection for us, that we might belong to you by grace forever. May we hear what you would have us hear today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you are here today, if you're watching at home, let's play a little game to start our time together. Let's play Family Feud. You know the drill, probably. 100 people surveyed, top five answers on the board. Here's the question for us to answer today. Name a food that should be bought fresh. Go ahead. Okay, fish we've got. Somebody over here? Fruit. All right, somebody over here. This is like, we're like three families, like three teams over here. This is great. Uh, somebody over here. Asparagus. I like asparagus. Asparagus ought to be fresh. That's true. Here are the top five answers from 100 people who were surveyed. Let's start with five, work our way up to one. Number five, meat. 12% of people would say meat. Fresh steak on the grill. Number four, bread. Edging it out by 2%. Number three, fruit, edging it out by 2%. 16% of people. All right, here's number two, vegetables. So there's your asparagus there, Karin. And finally, number one, the food that should be bought fresh. One in four people out of 100 people surveyed. By the way, you ever wonder, who are these 100 people? How do they get surveyed? I've always wondered about this. The number one food that should be bought fresh, people would say, fish. Congratulations to you if you said that. Nothing like a little bit of trivia. And of course, it is fish that the disciples are having with Jesus by the side of the lake. It's called Tiberias. It's called Galilee. Two names for the same place. I cook breakfast for uh, our kids and the family in the morning, and fish is never on our breakfast menu. <laughs> But this is very interesting. Not because of what was on the menu that morning. It's interesting because chapter 21 extends John's gospel. We've looked at this text already. It seems as if in the verses right before our text begins, at the end of chapter 20, the gospel's essentially over. John tells us the purpose for his book. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wraps up his gospel, tells us the purpose, and then has one more appearance of Jesus after his resurrection in chapter 21. What is John trying to show us here in chapter 21? That's our first question. Secondly, for that matter, what is Jesus trying to show us? Because this scene begins a bit like an episode of Undercover Boss. Remember that show? 
Now, the disciples don't know who Jesus is. His appearance is hidden to them, and he's giving them orders, telling them what to do, and then they sit down, and they have a meal, and then they know who he is, but they're not sure if it's him, it almost says, or they know it was the Lord, but they're not sure if they should ask him. What is Jesus trying to show them? These are the two questions before us today. What is John trying to show us? Something about the truth of the resurrection. What is Jesus here to show us? Something about the kind of life that he brings that we see as we move from chapter 20 to chapter 21. That's our quest over the next few minutes of our time together. First, what is John here to show us? And to answer that question, we need to zoom in and look carefully at the details of this text. Now, if you're watching at home and you've got a Bible and you want to open up to chapter 20 and follow along, if you've got a folder, a worship folder, and you want to follow along, let's recap the major events that begin this text. We're not sure how much time goes by between chapter 20 with the disciples in the upper room and Thomas. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And this account where Peter wakes up one day and he says, hey, I'm going fishing. Who's coming with me? The disciples say, we'll go too. We know this is Peter. This is Thomas in the upper room. Show me your hands inside. Remember him? Uh, Sons of Zebedee. John is one of the unnamed disciples here. Uh, John, the author of this gospel. There's seven disciples in total. Perhaps they're going back to their former way of life. You know, not sure what I'm going to do next now that Jesus has risen from the dead, what we're up to. And they set off and they go fishing. All night, they don't catch anything. Jesus is a hundred yards away from them, standing on the shores. They're coming in to land. Can you kind of hear them calling out over that distance? You kind of see it in your mind. Friends, children, have you caught any fish? No. Throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Okay, fine, all right, don't know who this guy is. Throw him on the other side. And they gather up, net full of fish, so strong, so heavy, but yet the nets aren't breaking. There's a detail that John gives us here. How many fish were in the net? 153. Why do you remember that number? Now listen, if you were making this up and you were trying to perpetuate a rumor that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead and trying to extend his story and writing long after the death of Jesus that he was risen from the dead, if you're making that up, the number that you would pick would not be 153. You would pick a number with religious or spiritual symbolism catering to the audience of the people who would be reading this account years later. You'd pick a number that meant something to the Jewish people, the Roman people, or the Greek people. You'd pick a number like three, or a number like three times three, nine. You'd pick a number like seven that pops up all over the scriptures, or seven times seven, 49, or 12, or 12 times 12, 144. But we don't find any of those numbers here. What do we find? 153, a random number. It wasn't written hundreds of years later. It was recorded by someone who was there that day and wrote it down. This account has all the marks of eyewitness testimony. Uh, not just the number, but let's take Peter. 
You know, John, the beloved disciple, is very humble. He never mentions himself by name in his account of the life of Jesus. Even though he's called the beloved disciple, he elbows Peter. It's the Lord. Peter jumps in the water, but what does he do after, right before he jumps in the water? Do you remember what he does? What does he do? He puts on his garment, outer garment. Now, if you were making this up and you were writing it 100 or 200 years later to perpetuate a myth that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead, that's not how you would write this detail. People of Colorado, tell me, how often do you zip up your North Face fleece before you jump in the pool? Never. If you were making this up, you would have written the opposite, that Peter took off his outer garment and jumped in the water. But that's not what we find. What we find here is the opposite, that he puts on his garment. This has all the marks of an eyewitness testimony who saw this random detail. He was right next to him in the boat and wrote it down because he was there. Not hundreds of years later. Not made up to perpetuate a myth. You see the detail that John is writing here. It's what he's trying to show us, the truth of the resurrection. Anne Rice, the New York Times best-selling author. You might remember the movie Interview with a Vampire, Tom Cruise. She wrote that book that was made into a movie during a very dark period of her life. She grew up in the church, walked away from the church, walked away from Christianity entirely. And for decades of her life was an atheist, including the period when she wrote that book. And she had a conversion experience in 1998 and set out to write about Jesus, who she knew and loves, and surveyed the contemporary scholarship of the last few decades in order to write a novel of fiction about Jesus. She wrote it in 2005, Christ the Son of God is the name of that book, and here's what she says in the author's note. She lists a number of compelling arguments about why she believes that strengthened her understanding in the truth of the resurrection, and then she goes on to say this. What gradually came clear to me was that many of the skeptical arguments, arguments that insisted most of the Gospels were suspect, that they came at it with a bias, for instance, or written too late to be eyewitness accounts, lacked coherence. She is not looking only at John, but she's looking also at what other people said and said there's no way that these things could have been written hundreds of years later. They have all the marks of eyewitness testimony. They were written within the lifetime of the people who were there and saw those things that day. Let's ask ourselves a question before we move on to question number two. The question for us today is so what? What does it matter if they're true? I'm willing to bet that if you're at home watching, if you're here in the room and you drove this far and you signed up a few days ago and put on your mask before you walked in the building, that you take for granted that these things are true. Let me ask you, when was the last time you stopped to ask yourself why you believe that these things are true? the reasons why you believe that you drove here, you're watching online, that you drove here, that that it's worth being in the building today. When's the last time that you stopped, if you take these things for granted, to believe that they're true? Would you add this to your list today of reasons why you believe these things are true, the detail that's written into the narrative when John was there that day? But maybe that's not you. 
And you have a hard time believing that these things could be true. It's easier to believe that they're a myth or a legend. Maybe you're just here because someone brought you here, your mom or your dad or your friend, out of obligation. Paul says, the Apostle Paul, writing to the earliest Christians, said that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And that means that your time here is a waste of time. And all of your devotion and all of your obedience and living according to God's design, it's fruitless. That's been a waste too. And for that matter, your life is a waste if Jesus isn't raised from the dead and if the resurrection isn't true because you will end up in dust and ashes in the ground at your death and you will stay there and every good thing that you've done in this life might make someone's life a little better for a while but their lives will end too in ash and dust in the ground and so every good thing that you've tried to do on this earth until your death that that's a waste of time and energy and effort too if these things aren't true and maybe you're not at either one of those extremes certainty doubt maybe some form of doubt that's in the middle that's got some questions mixed in that's a form of doubt too sure but yet unsure let me just tell you this set of reasons to believe based on the detail in the account is only scratching the surface of dozens of good reasons for you to believe would you at least just today take my word for it no matter where you are in this spectrum today that's why it matters. That's what John is trying to show us, the truth of the resurrection. That's question number one, but, but let's move on. What is Jesus trying to show us? And to get a glimpse of that, we've got to jump back into chapter 21. Remember what he does when the disciples get off the boat with the catch of fish. He invites them to the shore, and waiting for them on the shore is what? Anybody? fish, right? And bread on a charcoal fire. There's another detail. You catch that? Add that one to your list. Here is the creator of the ends of the earth, the universe and the stars and the fish that they are about to eat, and he is cooking them a meal. Can you imagine how good that meal must have tasted if the creator of the universe was their chef that morning? He invites them to a physical meal. John in his gospel, or Luke in his gospel, chapter 24, tells us that he asks the disciples, do you have anything to eat? In one of the appearances, because he's hungry, that John, and earlier in chapter 20, that Jesus invites John, uh, invites Thomas in chapter 20 of John to touch his hands and his side. This is no apparition. This is no ghost. This is no myth, no legend, no episode of Scooby-Doo. This is a physical person who invites them to a physical meal. That's what Jesus is showing us, the life that he is here to give, the life that you can have in his name that is yours by faith, life that is physical. I think something happens to us the longer we follow Jesus. There's this thing that happens. You live life long enough and the longer we follow Jesus, the more our hope in heaven grows. And the harder life seems, the longer we live, uh, 
And the more times that we sit in a room like this and attend a funeral for someone that we love, the longer we follow Jesus, the more our hope in heaven grows. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it's not the only thing. Because the life that Jesus brings is far more than general life after death. It's far better than being in heaven with Jesus or those we love who have gone before us in the faith. Those are good things, but I would argue those aren't the best things. Here's what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says about all of this. He says, Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. He's British, so this is kind of tongue-in-cheek here. Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. It's not the point. It's not the big thing. Resurrection isn't a fancy way of saying going to heaven when you die. It is not about life after death as such. Rather, it's a way of talking about being bodily alive again after a period of being bodily dead. Resurrection is a second stage post-mortem life, life after life after death. Life after life after death. So abstract and so neat, our minds can't fully grasp what that means. Let's try. We could be here all day just to unpack everything in there. So what? Let's ask ourselves this last question before we close. So what does it matter? The life that Jesus brings us is a physical one. Let's start first as we close by saying this. It means hope in the future for those whose bodies are failing. Hope in the future for those whose bodies are failing. I turned 40 last week. Yep. And the next day, I was uh, reaching up to the top shelf in our kitchen uh, for some vitamins because at 40 now, I take four vitamins a day. I have one of those little cases for every day of the week. This is my life now. And I was refilling my vitamin case and I reached to the top shelf and as I did, I sneezed and the day after my 40th birthday, I threw my back out. Yeah, this is great. I'm looking forward to more. Some of you are saying, you have no idea. You're just getting started. (laughs) Friday afternoon, I'm sitting at the kitchen table And I'm writing this section of my sermon. And I get a call from my dad that my grandpa, Grandpa Jack, who lives in Kansas, probably only has a couple of days more to live. He's 96. And he'd been in the hospital for a couple of weeks and was getting ready to leave the hospital. Had a couple of infections, one of them pneumonia, one of them sepsis in his knee, and they couldn't operate on him because he was 96. And he was getting better because of the antibiotics, but had taken a sudden turn. Uh, Grandpa Jack, we called him Action Jackson when I was a kid because he was always on the move. I mean, we walked to the park. He's 10 steps out in front of us, always going, Action Jackson. And he's not anymore. Uh, A couple of months ago, he started watching the services uh, here at Our Father uh, because we've been streaming since the fall. 
and uh, heard what he would consider to be the best preacher he's ever heard in his life. Can you guess who that would be? I don't know about those other guys. And he joined our church. When we uh, welcomed a few people, a couple of dozen people into our church family in the spring, just a couple months ago, because he considers this his church home. You've never met him. He lives outside Wichita, Kansas, but he's your brother in Christ and is a member of our church family. And I think I'm doing his funeral next week because my dad called last night and said that he had died at 8.09 p.m. This is what happens when you're a grandson and a pastor. I'm not sure how I'm going to keep it together. If Jesus rose from the dead and if the life that he has come to bring is physical, it means hope for those whose bodies are failing, who are 40 or 96 or younger or older. It means hope in the future for you because you get a new body when Jesus comes back and he ends the curse of death once and for all and he rejoins your soul with your body in the ground the way that you were meant and created to be body and soul together when he made us and created us in the garden of Eden and because you don't belong simply in heaven with Jesus as good as that is you'll see him face to face at the moment of your death Jesus says to the thief on the cross today you'll be with me in paradise as good as that is heaven is the is good but it's not the end There's a life after life after death, a physical life for those who trust in him. It means hope for those whose bodies are failing, hope in the future, but yet it means so much for us in our present reality and our experience as Christians today. Because our Christian experience today is physical. It is bread and wine that you got when you came that we touch and taste it is the waters of baptism where God brought you into his story and adopted you into his family those waters that we return to when we say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit the waters that the name of God that was spoken over us when we were baptized that brought us into his family that we return to not simply back then that we return to during worship that we return to every day that remind us that we're his sons and daughters adopted by grace and that identity never changes it is physical bread and wine and water and words that are spoken out loud read and preached words spoken to forgive you where God says I love you and I forgive you and you are mine forever words that we hear and words that we see ink on a page where God uses the scriptures to reveal himself to us do you see my friends how physical The experience is for you and for me today in the present as we walk and follow Jesus as Christians. Maybe you're watching at home right now and to be physically present in the room seems like a long shot for you. What I want you to know is that we need you and we miss you and we're at our best when we're together. Maybe you're here today and singing with a mask on feels a bit like a chore. I get it. Feels more like a duty than anything and you're kind of here but you're kind of not. Look, I know it's not what it could be. I know it's not what it was. But I'm glad you're here. Because we need you. 
And we're at our best when we are together. And maybe for you, you're here, sitting in the room today, and you're just so glad to be here, to see other people, to sing, to take the sacrament. I want you to know that I'm glad that you're here, because when you're here, we're at our best, because we're at our best when we're together. Our hope is not just one for the future, for bodies that are failing. It is that, but it is so much more. It is a present reality for us. It's physical. That's the life that Jesus is here to bring. It's what he's here to show you today in John chapter 21. And that's what John is showing you here today, the truth of these things, the truth of the resurrection of a God who died for you and rose for you to give you life after life after death so that you could belong to him through all of that together. This is Jesus, who we love and worship, who's crucified and risen for you. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia, amen.